The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This Advent season, we have been talking about poverty and have recognized that to be poor can mean many things. Together, we have remembered the homeless and the outcast, the despised and the devalued, the unloved and the hopeless, just some of the many faces of poverty in this world. And we have seen that the deepest poverty of all is experienced when relationship with God is broken because of sin. And that the gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas has provided for us a means of reconciliation with God. A living hope for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Christ was completely and perfectly rich in glory and relationship, and he willingly put all that aside so that we, because of his generous sacrifice, could experience the joy of glorious and eternal relationship with him. His generous sacrifice. Scripture makes it clear that we are to imitate Jesus by being generously sacrificial ourselves. Our most joyful task is to further the kingdom of Christ by generously sharing the good news of the grace of God with the many in this world who have not yet received it. We have been given a spiritual treasure that we are not meant to keep only to ourselves. But we are also called to, be, to a sacrifice, sacrificial generosity that spills out of the spiritual and into the material. You see, we live in a world where many of us live in physical poverty, where many do not have the means to put Christmas presents under a tree, or the means to keep their family warm, or the means to educate their children, or even the means to have enough food to eat. Without a doubt, our highest commission is to invite souls into the kingdom of God. Our responsibility to physically help the poor is not nearly so radical. It is simply a given. To be truly Christ-like requires us to cheerfully give from our material wealth in order to provide help for those who are without means. This Christmas, may the gift of Jesus Christ inspire us to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of both the spiritually and the physically impoverished. May our generosity reflect that the Almighty God, who became a, made our generosity reflect that of the mighty God, who became a humble child for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's bow our heads. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for this uh, season of the year, and uh, Lord, we, we thank you that from the micro to the macro that you are God, that you're God of the littlest things in our lives that we can bring to you, and you're God of the nations and the cosmic things that go on that are well beyond our understanding, that you broke into history and you showed us your love through your son Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for, uh, that we can today just lift up to you every family member, every personal concern, every friend or neighbor that we have a burden for, that we're concerned of, uh, that Lord, you already are there in that situation. We pray for them. Lord, we lift them up to you that you might meet them in their need. 
Father, we, we thank you for our country, and we look at uh, some of the good things that are going on, and we want to champion everything that is in line with what you champion, O oh God. So we rejoice with Shoal Lake. We thank you, God, for uh, the Freedom Road that's going to be built. We know that it's just part of a solution that's bigger, but God, we believe that uh, you're healing something there. We thank you for that. We thank you for the truth and reconciliation that is taking place. We pray it will have substance. God, we, uh, we rejoice in what was accomplished at Paris, Lord, uh, about our climate, our country, our, our, our globe. We ask you, Lord, to give will and energy and uh, resources to countries that have committed to some things that are very important as we are stewards of this earth that you've given us. And Lord, we think of the Syrian refugees that are all over the world, God just fleeing from a terrible situation. We praise you for uh, the places in Canada that are opening their doors, uh, private sponsorships and, and government sponsorships. Lord, may we as the body of Christ be the arms of Jesus that reach out and love them when they arrive and show them how, Lord, to... Um, to know you. Oh God, would you help us? We thank you for these things as well. Lord, we know that uh, there's awful things going on in this world as well. You, the Prince of Peace, are not welcome in many places. Lord, we can also think of the micro to the macro on that level. And so we ask you, Lord, in personal family relationships, as well as in huge cultural and ethnic and religious strife in this world, we pray, oh God, that your, your presence would come and that we might be part of the solution as your people, even at this Christmas time. So God, open our hearts now and our ears that we might hear what your spirit wants to say to us through the word in Jesus' name. Well, we've been talking about poverty, as the Advent reading earlier stated, and uh, we have come to understand a little bit more about poverty redefined, not simply in physical, economic, monetary ways, but poverty understood more in terms of brokenness, broken relationships. We have uh, talked about a book that uh, we've been, some of us have looked at uh, when helping hurts. And uh, the authors define poverty in, in four different broken relationships. Number one, broken relationship with God. Number two, with self. Number three, with others. And number four, with the planet, with creation. And that some, to some degree, we are all, we are all poor when we, when we define poverty that way. And um, we need to be thinking about uh, restored relationships I am grateful to hear that uh, this Christmas card campaign is, is res being responded to well. Um, I was particularly thinking this morning of our trip to India last year when uh, four from our congregation were in India with another team and we had visited uh, Siliguri in West Bengal, Alipurduar, Jaigon, right on the border of, of uh, Bhutan. And, and in the three places that we went, we, we were introduced to... Uh, pastors and their wives and children who 
who are actually part of these 13 that Doug mentioned that we, we pay uh, for their education each year, these pastors that are committed to almost to poverty as soon as they enter the ministry there. And, and uh, praise the Lord that we can respond, and, and I'm glad that there's just two more uh, that we need to fill for that, uh, for that commitment. So if God tugs on your heart this morning in any way and you want to respond to this uh, Christmas card campaign, uh, I'm, I'm encouraging you. You know, the thing that I like about it that we've done, I think, for four years now is that it's, it's based on relationships, existing relationships. We don't just kind of willy-nilly throw money somewhere as, you know, you get an emotional appeal, but God kind of leads us into this relationship. And that's because... Uh, when we understand poverty and solutions to poverty, they're, they're, they're packaged in the form of restored relationship where it's been broken. And so we have a relationship with LBE, Living Bible Explorers, downtown. We have a relationship in northern Manitoba with, uh, with uh, Pathway Camp Ministries. We have a relationship in India through Far Corners Ministry. And, and in each capacity, each year, there's this growing volume of people in our pews, of our church family, that know the people uh, in, in Garden Hill or in West Bengal or in, in downtown Winnipeg or wherever. And that's, that's I think, uh, the way that God would have His grace applied in His presence through us to restoring relationships that have been broken. And so I rejoice in these kinds of efforts that we can be in part of. Last week, last week we, we talked about the shepherds as being the poorest among the uh, narrative of the Christmas story. And today we're going to be more directly aiming at this theme that we have had in Advent about the poverty and about, about uh, what we can do about it. It might surprise you to know that Jesus talked a lot about money. Uh, Jesus saw money as a spiritual matter. He said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as we ask ourselves this morning the, the question, did I have formed my current attitudes about money? Did I form my current attitudes about my use of money from the Bible? Or did I somehow get shaped by the world around me in how I and how I spend, and how I give, and how I share, and how I save, and so on. And um, that's the way that I'd like to think about it this morning. If you've been part of our church for a while, you might have heard me preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I remember years ago hearing an outline that just gripped me when it described the three principal characters of that parable of the Good Samaritan as representative of three different philosophies of life and how we manage money. The first is the represented in the thieves who, who have a philosophy of saying, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Uh, the second is in the Levite and the priest who walk by the man on the Samaritan or on the, on the road to uh, Jericho. And they're representative of the attitude that is very common, of course, it's what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And therefore, the other side of that is what's yours is yours, you keep it, whatever it might be, better than mine or worse than mine. And then the third is, of course, what takes it the step beyond, and that's the Good Samaritan who says, and lives by an attitude of what's, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the going beyond kind of step. And, and so there's really three, three ways we can fall into the trap of taking from others. And before you absolve yourself of that one, I'll, I'll just throw a wrench into your thoughts. I think personally, and I'm not going to uh, go down hard on this one, but I think personally that any form of lottery or gambling is, is living by that first ethic. 
because what you are doing is you are self-justifying a form of taking something that you did not work for or that you were not specifically given. The second place is where most of us live, don't, isn't it? It's the trap of keeping what is ours and letting others keep what is theirs. It's the default setting of humanity. It's the fairness setting. It's the law of karma. You get what you put out. It's Newton's law. Every action has a positive re reaction, a, a similar reaction. You, you work, you get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. And of course, we could even argue that it's biblical law, an eye for an eye. It's Mosaic law. It's even Paul's law. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And so we can have all kinds of ways of justifying stopping at that rim of the, the second law, the second philosophy. But the, the parable of the Good Samaritan takes us that one step further into the what's mine is yours, I'll share it realm. And um, it sees everything that we have as a gift from God. It does not have this understanding of ownership quite like we have it in the West. And it sees that indeed we are stewards of everything that we have. We have a lived stewardship that is being lived out every day. Someone said that stewardship is everything that you do after you say you believe. That's stewardship. Because you see, as soon as you say that you believe, you acknowledge, I'm not the owner ultimately. I'm accountable to somebody else, and I'm going to be held accountable with what I do with it. Paul actually summed up all three of these philosophies in a verse in Ephesians 4.28. He says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Interesting how Paul just has a way of summing up all three in one verse. So a consumer society teaches us that you will be more happy if you have more things. A consumer society tells you that, that uh, you, knew, you do have more need, and if you have more need met, you will have more joy, more happiness. But the truth is that after your basic needs are met, more money and more possessions can actually diminish your capacity for enjoying God. More money and more things. Buying more things contributes absolutely nothing to your heart's capacity for real joy. You see, real joy comes from the fact that by, by God's grace, you've received something and you understand the source of it, and then by God's grace, you have the will to actually turn it outward and bless others with it. That's where real joy comes from, but, but you won't get that unless you understand the source in God. And so this morning's text is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, you want to... There's, there's Bibles in the pews as well, if you want to turn to it. I'm not going to read a big portion. I'm just going to refer to the text as we go through it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the key verse that we want to look at this morning is in verse 9, where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the text that we're going to look at this morning. And I want to start by unpacking what does it mean, Paul mean, when he says, though he was rich, he became poor. The verbiage in that three words, he became poor, is really important to understand. 
Because you see, it's an aorist tense, past tense verb. And it means not so much talking about, oh, poor Jesus, he lived these 33 years as a poor man on earth. You know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Poor Jesus. It's not talking about a, a period of time. It is talking about an instance, an event in time. That's what. When he became poor, it's talking, Paul's talking about one event, and the event is represented in that manger. It's the incarnation of the Godhead. It's, it's Jesus Christ made man. That's the event that Paul is talking about. And there's something inside of every one of us who understands God. There's something inside of every one of us that should say, in our heart, in our spirit, we should say, that's not right when we think about it. This idea of though he was rich, yet he became poor, there should be something in us that says, that's not right. That the eternal Son of God, who was with the Father and the Spirit in all of eternity past, at one moment in time, should actually take the form of a, a seed planted in the womb of a woman. That, that He, the eternal, immense, all-powerful God, should, should actually be confined to, to a woman's stomach walls, and there develop and form into a baby, and then that it, it's not right. I mean, I'm all the angels of glory that watched the Son of God and worshipped Him just looked in awe and in horror when this happened, and they looked at, and they, this is not right. And then as He came through that birth canal... And, they, and then he breathed his first breath of stinky human earthly air as opposed to breathing the heavenly air that the eternal Son of God was used to breathing. The heavenly creatures cried, it's not right. We have on the stage here a, a manger with a little... A little doll representing Jesus. And I thought last week in worship about the, the first breath that the Son of God breathed. And then behind it, the cross. And I thought about the last breath that the Son of God breathed. There's something inside of us that should say, it's not right. It has to grip us. And, and the reason it has to grip us so deeply is because Jesus says, if, in, if you want to take up your cross and be my follower, then you're going to have to live on that not right path where the grace of God gets a hold of you and you're led to live in a way that doesn't seem right. And that's really what chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians is all about. When Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, God calls you to live that life too, you and I. Now, every text in Scripture has a context. Well, let's not ignore it this morning. 
What is happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is our Christmas text this morning? What's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is that Paul the Apostle, as he writes the church in Corinth, is talking about an offering that he's gathering. And the reason he's gathering it is because there is a, a, a poor need that's more, uh, more felt than in any other place that Paul has gone. And it's in Jerusalem, the mother church. That's where the poverty has been most felt. That's where the need is. And so as Paul is traveling to the different churches, he's telling about the need in Jerusalem, and he's offering an opportunity to, 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 to commit to it, to, to give toward it. And in chapter 8, he's actually using the Macedonian province of churches to describe an example of what he wants the Corinthian church to be like. And so he's using them as an example. And in this nine verses, from verses 1 to 9, there are five times that he uses the word grace. So what I would like to say quickly this morning to you is I'd like to share five principles of grace giving that are not right, right? But it's the way that God calls us. The first thing I'd like to say is, is about the priority of grace giving, and it's found in verse 5 where it says, and they did not do, they meaning the Macedonian churches, not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So what's the first thing? The first thing is that the priority of grace giving is not on the need. You will always have an appeal to some need. And we can give willy-nilly with no plan and at the end of the day, have, have nothing left to give and be no further ahead. But, but Paul says, no, I like the way the Macedonians did it because he says they gave themselves first to God and then to the need. And I think that's the priority of grace giving. You see, we give ourselves first to God and then God shows us where we're to give to whatever need intersects with our lives. It means that when the offering plate is passed down the aisle, God's first priority is not on the size of the donation, but rather the size of the devotion. That's what he's interested in. And uh, we, we get our, our cue from Jesus when he taught as he was in the temple one day and he sees a, a widow give a couple of coins on the plate and he said to his disciples, that woman gave more than all those other rich people that have been giving. He looks at the size of our devotion. The reason this is so important is that if someone can talk you into giving something, then someone else can talk you out of giving to that something. And you're just thrown here like a ship on the sea. But if God, the Spirit, convinces you inwardly and you're convicted of where you are to aim your resources and your, your time and your money and so on, then not much is going to sway you because you know that God called you into that. The second thing I see is the paradox of grace giving in verses 2 and 3. It says, out of the most severe trial, this Macedonian group of churches, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That's interesting. What does it mean, give beyond their ability? Are we, are we being taught to give what we don't have? No, I don't think we're being taught to give what we don't have here. It's interesting. There's a paradox. Paul is using the Macedonian churches as an example, and he says that the first thing he says about them in verse 1 is that 
that the grace that God gave them overflowed. So in other words, God is the source of the, of the thing that comes out of the Macedonian church. God's the source. He gets the glory, but they get the joy. And that's actually the way we live our lives. If, if God gets the glory, then we get the joy. And so what happens is that we see our own struggles, our limited resources. We feel God tugging on our hearts. We don't want to worry about our ability because God's not worried about our ability. God's concerned about our availability. And if we're available to him, then he'll provide the ability. And so it says that the Macedonian churches, out of their extreme poverty, they gave even beyond their ability. I don't know how that works, but I know it's true with the way God works. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond. Somehow this applies to life in the sense that when we step out in faith beyond what we think is reasonably capable we're reasonably capable of doing, God often surprises us, and then we see God at work, and people see God at work. We depend on His future grace. Thirdly, there's the passion here that is found in verse 4 of grace giving. That, that says this, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. They pleaded. Now, this is the out of extreme poverty. This is a poor church pleading with Paul to take the offering that they gathered for the church in Jerusalem, even though they were already poor. You have to read it almost a couple times to see what, what's going on here. But there was this idea that they had to invest in something beyond themselves because they, they found such joy in that. And they knew the grace, the future grace of God would meet them. They felt called into it. There's one other time I could think of as I was preparing this week when I see this in the Scripture. It's in the Old Testament church under the time of Solomon when they're building the temple. And it says in the Scriptures that the Levites and the priests had to tell the people, stop giving. We've got enough to build this thing. Stop giving. Can you imagine if next fall in, in, in October... When we are in our capital fund campaign and the team is leading us, and we are in this intensely focused six or eight weeks of prayer and of preparation as we go to God and we say, God, how much can I give over the next three years? What is my responsibility in this as part of the church family? Can you imagine if, if the capital team came back to us in November just before Advent and said, whoa, stop it. We got enough. Wouldn't that be great? I know you think, well, that's unbelievable. That's not possible. No, it isn't possible. It's beyond our ability. Just like what Macedonian church is doing here. It's beyond their ability. But God wants us to just be available and He'll take care of the ability that is within us and among us. Amen? I don't, I don't know. Amen? God's going to keep us on this track of learning by faith. There's a paradox here in this. And so uh, wherever there's a paradox, God's glory gets a chance to shine. Finally, I want to say in verse 4, or sorry, the fourth thing is in purity of grace giving. Verse 8. Paul says, I'm not commanding you. That's important. It never can be a command when it comes to giving. Because Paul said, 
that God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, not under compulsion, but out of a free will. And in this passage, he's, he's saying, I, I'm giving you an opportunity to, to prove the sincerity of your love. There's an interesting book that was written several uh, centuries ago uh, in 1728. An Anglican minister by the name of William Law wrote a little book, very small book. Some people say it was used by God to spark the Great Awakening in England. And it was called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Now, what made it a serious call is the same reason of what makes Paul's words so serious in this chapter 8. Because William Law was convinced, along with Paul, the apostle, that for a professing believer to have money, excessive money, for a professing believer to spend that money endlessly on himself at the expense of the needs of others was a denial of his very profession and salvation. And the test of a genuine faith was this willingness to adopt a lifestyle that reflected and made giving possible regularly. Interesting. Let me read just one paragraph from that little book. It says, money thus spent is not merely wasted or lost. It is spent to bad purposes and miserable effects, to the corruption and disorder of our own hearts, to the making of us less able to live up to the sublime doctrines of the gospel. It is like keeping money back from the poor in order that we might simply buy poison for ourselves. <laughs> and so Paul also warns of the dangers of the love of money and its snare. And then finally, going full circle, the fifth example of this word grace in this text is, is the text that we read, read that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus in this is, is a pattern. He's the pattern and the gateway for us to enter into that grace and be conduits of it for others. And so uh, the scriptures teach us that we need to decide in our hearts, is, is it faith that I, do I have faith in God in this area? Do I believe God in what he says? Have I been made rich, as the scriptures say, or do I really question whether I've been made rich in Jesus Christ, physically and spiritually? One author I read said, giving is not a way of showing God how much we can do for him, but it's a way of illustrating how much God has already done for us. So in conclusion, I want to share with you four things that I think the Scriptures kind of teach us about how do we respond to poverty that is going to be always on planet Earth and with us. First thing I'd like to say is I'd like to go back to a doctrine that I believe is fundamental to us understanding and living among the poor, and that is the doctrine of being created in the image of God. Uh, we, don't, we don't drill down enough into that doctrine to understand what it means. You see, we are caught up into a material world that believes, as materialism does, that, that the answers are found in the physical and material realms. But if you believe in materialism as its fundamental philosophy, then you're going to look to materialism to solve the world's problems. And the solutions that are among the poor will be somehow addressed with material solutions. But Jesus said that we are not just bodies, but we are souls, and we have a spirit, each one. And Jesus said that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
that there's more to this equation. And as spiritual beings, therefore, every human, poverty stricken or not, has in, in inherent dignity and value. And so we start and we stand on that common ground with all of humanity because we understand the definition of poverty, that it's about brokenness, broken relationships with God, with self, with others, and with creation. And so we start on that, that common ground. And when you stand on common ground, it's hard to look down upon someone else as though you're the great philanthropist and they're the poor beggar that needs us. So we start on this ground of, of being equally created in the image of God and being broken image bearers. We, along with them, for we also have broken relationships with God, with self, with others, and with creation. Secondly, the importance of being connected to the people of God. If poverty is fundamentally about broken relationships, then we should always attempt to give, to minister, to help in, in existing context of ongoing relationship. That's why I say this uh, Christmas card campaign is all sought to be in existing and ongoing relationship. And what does that mean as we dialogue with the poor? It means that we see them as vital members to society, not as parasites, not as a drain, but as actually a people that are part of society. And that leads to the third point, that they're also contributors in the community. We often have this idea that somehow God's domain is the church and the world's domain, well, let's see the devil or the world or something else, but God's domain is the church. But you know, God is the God of the community. God is the God of society. God is the God of, of all people. Though they have yet to acknowledge God as God, God has put within every human created in His image something of that dignity that gives them the worth of creating and giving and contributing to the very need that they feel and the need that others around them feel. And if we treat them as though they do not have something to contribute, then we are not treating them as the way God would have us treat them, created in the image of God. And so let me read to you from that book, When Helping Hurts. He writes, our basic predisposition should be to see the poor communities, including their natural resources, people, families, neighborhoods, schools, businesses, and so on, as being created by Christ and reflective of His goodness. Hence, as we enter a poor community, there is a sense in which we're walking on holy ground. Because you see, Christ has been actively at work in that community since the creation of the world. It should give us an attitude of respect and a desire to help the community residents to discover, celebrate, and further develop God's already gifts to them. Do we see the society, the poor, that way? And then finally, I want to suggest that, that it's also that, that we need to stand on common ground with, with the poor with the idea of calling them to be committed to something that goes way beyond them. I think every soul on earth is meant to be committed to a cause that will outlive them and outlast them and, and go way beyond them. And, and we're, we're called to do that with them as well. Now, I know that we will meet people who have hardly begun their journey inward to know Jesus Christ in their spirit. We will meet people who have hardly understood the, the message of 
Christmas and the cross. People that have not seen themselves as sinners that need to be redeemed. We will meet people like that, but it does not minimize the fact that they were created by God for the same purpose that you and I were created by God, for worship. To worship this living God that became man. And to be part of His great kingdom cause on earth. And so that is also our calling among the poor. We can easily become impressed with philanthropy that is of big donors with big pockets. And, and the media gets a hold of that and it's all over the papers. But I think God's eye is on smaller things, yet more real things. When we studied the message of David, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I think God is very interested in the donations that come from our hearts. I think God is very interested in us being broken in our hearts by the things that break His heart, and then out of the grace received from Him, just throwing it out hilariously to meet a need that God puts on our hearts. I, like Paul, have been more inspired by the poor than by the rich when it comes to giving. I remember, I remember being in Bolivia and... Um, Around this time of the year, a, a student pastor of our seminary would, would come knocking at our door where we lived, and uh, he would say, Pastor, is there a chance that you could make it up to see us again? And when he said that, he meant going up, up the roads of Cochabamba. Cochabamba was in kind of a valley, and around the valley were all these mountains, and up on the, on the side of a mountain was a little neighborhood that was growing. It's called Barrio Porvenir, which means the neighborhood that's coming. And it really wasn't there yet. It was like just shanty lean-tos and corrugated metal and cardboard. And, and there was this squatters group of people that were up there from all kinds of places in the campo. And Pastor Emeterio Lovera, his name was, poor pastor had the heart to, to get as many people in his church from Kiyokoyo that could come and just start this little plant, this little church plant among children, first of all. Poor, poor people. And I was inspired Every time our family would go up there each Christmas, one Christmas we bought them some Sunday school curriculum that they could color and use and tell Bible stories with. Another Christmas we bought them little benches that they could sit on. But I was more inspired by them because out of their poverty, out of their inability, God made something possible. And that's what God wants to do with each one of us. He wants the grace that we've had touch our hearts through Jesus Christ who's made us rich. He wants that grace to overflow and, and for us to give way beyond even our ability because that's what God does when he multiplies it. Like the five loaves and the two fish that the little boy brought to Jesus and were multiplied to feed many. There may be some cynics in the room. Usually there are who say, how can this guy even try to get money out of Christmas time? 
why don't you, Pastor, talk about Mary and Jesus? And get with it. Well, I want you to imagine that Christmas day, how Mary felt and what she talked about. And it's very powerful, and I'm going to change the words to turn them into a blessing for all of us that we ask from God for ourselves. Oh, God, our soul glorifies you fully. Our spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, our Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call us blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to we who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. As he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted us up, we the humble, we the poor. And he has filled us who are hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away. He's helped his servant Israel, his church white rich, in remembering to be merciful. Merry Christmas to you, and thanks be to God. Amen.